This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. 54 years ago this month, Neil Armstrong did something no human had done before. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Those words, broadcast from the moon on July 20th, 1969, undersold just how tough those first steps were. Armstrong and crewmate Buzz Aldrin were wearing big, bulky spacesuits designed to protect them from intense cosmic radiation and the vacuum of space. Each suit had more than two dozen layers of protective material, and along with the life support system, weighed 81 pounds on Earth. Though, since the moon's gravity is weaker, Armstrong and Aldrin only carried about 30 pounds when they stepped out of the lunar lander. There seems to be no difficulty in moving around as as we suspected. Uh, It's even perhaps easier than the simulations of 1-6-G that uh, we performed uh, in various simulations on the ground. Astronauts are already wearing more advanced spacesuits for missions outside the International Space Station, or ISS. Now, NASA is preparing to send humans back to the moon as early as 2025. And engineers are rethinking how to dress this next generation of astronauts. Because while the Apollo suits were high-tech for the time... It's, it's like trying to combine a Mack truck and an IndyCar. <laughs> so... The suit did everything, but just none of it to the top level that it could. That's NASA spacesuit engineer Amy Ross. She spent years designing what astronauts wear in order to accomplish their missions. New spacesuits will have to be lighter, more flexible, and offer more mobility, while making sure the person inside can survive. It is a life support system. This is what's keeping you alive when you're in the environment that doesn't necessarily care if you stay alive or not, Um, and kind of doesn't actively work against you, but (laughs) but sure doesn't help. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Danny Lewis. At the Future of Everything Festival in May, I spoke with Amy Ross about designing lighter, more flexible, and more mobile spacesuits for this new mission to the moon, and to survive environments where no human has gone before, like Mars. Stay with us. This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. There's more to being a successful entrepreneur than just good business practices. What is it about an entrepreneur's childhood that helped fuel their entrepreneurial spirit? What are entrepreneurs doing to cultivate this spirit in their own children and build a legacy beyond their business? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with leading entrepreneurs on these topics and more. Find the road to why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. And now, here's my conversation with NASA spacesuit engineer Amy Ross from the Future of Everything Festival in May. It's been edited for Time and Clarity. So, they may be called spacesuits, but it's not like you're just putting on a jacket and pants, right? 
what are some of the challenges that you have to figure out in order to make this thing that astronauts can work in while keeping them alive? Well, astronauts care about getting their job done. They are very type A people. They are very goal-oriented. And so they just want to use the tool you're giving them, which they consider the suit to be. They kind of don't think about the keeping me alive part as much. So one of the things that we've learned is we have to design the spacesuit to be um, astronaut-proof, which is difficult. <laughs> But um, if you tell them, don't use your glove as a hammer, because we know there's just a few thin layers of material there keeping them alive, um, they're still gonna if they need to. So <laughs> you got to make it astronaut-proof. Right, and because it's not like, I don't know, if I'm working on something at home, like, you know, tuning up my bike or something, I can just, like, get in and kind of, you know, twist a bolt or something. But you can't really do that if you're on the outside of the ISS, I guess. Um, not so much, but we're making them more interactive now because we know that the astronauts are going to need to be more um, self-sufficient. We're trying to think ahead. We're trying to think to the future. And so when you go to Mars, you're going to be needing to do some of those things for yourself. And so we are trying to think about how the astronaut can adjust things for themselves. All right, I want to come back to talking about those Mars suits in a little bit. But first, a little bit closer, uh, you know, next stop, I guess, is the moon in 2025. But we already have these spacesuits for going on walks at the ISS. So why would you need to use different suits for going back to the moon when we have these ones already? Yeah. So um, spacesuit design is predicated on where you're going and what you're doing. Uh, so think about going on vacation. Somebody says, pack for vacation. And you're going, well, where are we going? What are we doing? Uh, am I packing for a ski trip or am I packing for the Bahamas? What, what do I need? And so the spacesuits are the same way. You need to pack for what they're going to be doing. You need to pack for where they're going to be going. Um, so the design has to reflect those challenges of that environment and those activities. And so... You don't really have to pay attention to the boots when you're on ISS, but you sure do when you're going to a planetary surface. Yeah, what are some of the uh, other hazards that, uh, you know, like a spacewalk suit might have to protect against versus, you know, what the, you know, the next generation of uh, astronauts who are going back to the moon are going to be, be dealing with? Actually, a lot of the same, just maybe different ranges. Uh, so one of the things um, I'd always done was I worked on advanced spacesuits, and I was always trying to think ahead. And so I tried to look at all the different kinds of requirements, all the different environments, all the different things you do, and made sure that I thought about, you know, what's the hottest temperature, what's the coldest temperature we're going to need to look at. But then they asked us for the lunar suits to build a suit that could go into permanently shadowed regions, so um, craters on the South Pole, uh, colder than liquid nitrogen temperatures there. And I never thought about building a spacesuit to go there. So that's one of the kinds of challenges we have to think about and, and design for. Right, like, what do you have to do to make a suit that will survive in a temperature like that? Well, we have some good analogs we can look at. So, you know, boots that people use to hike Everest or go to the South Pole, Antarctica. Um, they have some insulation, air insulation, but then also other thermal insulation, aerogels and different kinds of materials that you can use. And you kind of start from there and see what else you need. And sometimes NASA has to develop new materials to make these things possible. So, like we've been saying, a couple years from now, NASA is planning to send astronauts to the surface of the moon. It's the first time in more than 50 years with the Artemis III mission. Uh, Axiom Space is developing the suits they'll wear, but you and your team designed the prototype they're based on, the Extravehicular Mobility Units, or XEMU. Yep. 
How are they different from the ones that the Apollo astronauts, like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, use? Yeah, significantly different. Um, this was the first time we were able to focus on building just a planetary walking suit. Um, the Apollo suit, great suit, did the mission, right, which is the goal, but it did three jobs. It was the crew survival suit, so the suit they launched and landed in, and if they you know, had to bail out of the capsule or something, it had different equipment for that. It also did microgravity EVA, so the capsule commander who went out and did a short spacewalk to go get some film, uh, he wore a suit with just a little bit of difference, but same general thing. But then, of course, there were the two spacewalkers on the lunar surface. It's, it's like trying to combine a Mack truck and an Indy car. <laughs> so the suit did everything, but just none of it to the top level that it could. What were some of the other challenges that you, you came across when, when working on the prototype? Uh, well, you know, you, you talk to your safety people, and one of the things that they're worried about is you're going to get lost. Um, and we keep thinking you're in a white suit on a gray planet, and there's only so many of you. It's not like there's a crowd and you get lost. In. <laughs> so, but, you know, you could get covered in dust. Fair enough. You could be gray. Uh, you know, but how do you maintain some of those safety features without adding so much complexity to the design that it really just becomes more of a hindrance or a reliability issue than really something helpful. And then just the size range we talk about, because uh, the Apollo suits were molded to the individual crew members, and that's one of the reasons they worked as well as they did, because they fit them very well. So we want to have more of a, a modular structure like we have with the current suit on the ISS. And so just trying to fit um, somebody who's like, 6'2", and, you know, over 200 pounds, and, you know, barrel-chested, uh, and somebody smaller than me, actually got it into two different pieces of upper torso hardware, uh, is, you know, kind of an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> right. I mean, those original suits were designed for men. Like, now we're yeah. summoning women to the, yeah. the moon for the first time, too. Yep. Yep. And so you get a woman into one of those suits, and the hips just don't quite... <laughs> work. So trying to think about, you know, all the different shapes of people. Now, in a EVA suit, though, I got to say, we make things large enough that the, some of the differences don't matter as much. <laughs> like what, in what way? Uh, the hip girth isn't as important. We've, we've got sizes just to fit the larger males that also then accommodate the larger females as well. And then uh, with the upper torso sizes, you know, a lot of people ask about um, how about if I'm buxom. <laughs> and really, again, if you've got a big barrel-chested dude, uh, you can be as buxom as you want to. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is actually a question I've had for a while. Like, how do you actually put on one of these? Because, like, again, like, it's not like you're putting on, like, a jacket and pants, no. right? No. In general, there's kind of two different styles. There's a waist-entry style. That's where you do put the pants on. Uh, usually, you kind of sit on the floor and wiggle into it. And then you have to kind of get help standing up. And then your upper torso, your, your shirt is on a rack. And you kind of have to get down under it and then like swim into it. And, it's, and then you connect in the middle and it's quite the procedure. Um, but in our suits that we're looking at now, they're called rear entry suits. The idea is to be able to give you as much shoulder mobility as you can. So if you have the upper torso um, kind of built and you get in the back, then your shoulder bearings can be where you want them to be. And so you just open the hatch on the back, and then you kind of have to slide down into it and then get your arms in and close the door. <laughs> and actually closing that door by yourself is one of our engineering design issues that we're still working on because it's uh, not real smooth yet. Right. I could, 
I can imagine yeah. that's really hard to get when yeah. you're trying to reach behind your back like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So NASA is planning to send the first humans to Mars in the late 2030s or early 2040s. Mars is different from the moon, right? Like, how does that affect what those suits will need to do? Yeah, so definitely how you deal with the dust environment, for one, is different. Um, lunar dust is basically broken glass, really sharp, um, not weathered by any kind of chemistry or wind. Um, so you have to think about that when you pick the materials that you're using to keep your spacesuit safe. When you go to Mars, there is more of a chemically active environment and a weather environment to deal with. And so the, the soil is more like a clay and it tends to want to stick to you in a different kind of way. So yeah, you have to think about those different kinds of environmental considerations in your design for one. The gravity conditions also matter. So um, you really have to kind of manage that with you know, getting the suit there and then also wearing the suit routinely. And that's also feels like a tricky thing to me because, again, like we've been to the moon, like it was 50 years ago, but we have a lot of information about it and we know a lot more about Mars now with all the, the probes and rovers and everything that we sent there. But there's, it's, it's different. It's a different thing from actually having that first-hand yeah, experience. Yeah, sample return so, missions and those kinds of things. Exactly. So how do you plan for something that you, you know, we know a lot about, but it's still we don't necessarily have that same practical experience with in the same way. So one of the things I'm most proud about in my career is I was the person who got the first human spaceflight hardware on Mars. Um, me and my team. <laughs> I like to take credit. <laughs> Yeah, so we sent a material exposure experiment to Mars on the Perseverance rover. And what happens is there's the instrument, the Sherlock instrument is going to take imagery that they get a spectra from the samples here of different materials that we have for the spacesuit, including the helmet bubble, um, polycarbonate. And we're going to see how the spectra changes over time with exposure to the environment, uh, especially the ultraviolet radiation and those kinds of things on Mars. And we can do tests on the ground that we can use to correlate with our exposure data on Mars, and we can also then know what the strength of the material is at those different points. After the break, we'll hear what else Amy's team learned about designing spacesuits for Mars by watching scientists try out prototypes here on Earth. Stay with us. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. NetSuite by Oracle brings accounting, finance, inventory, and HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce costs everywhere. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. So head to netsuite.com slash wallstreet right now. You recently worked on what's called an analog test. Uh, your team put a bunch of geologists in spacesuits and sent them out into the Arizona desert to kind of simulate what Mars astronauts will be doing. Um, what did you learn from that whole experience? You know, I can think I'm designing a spacesuit that gives a geologist the mobility they need, but until I really put a geologist in a spacesuit and say, do geology, I don't know. Uh, and really the, the challenge is where do you help him with the tools? Where, do, where does she put her samples? Are there other things? Are there other tools? Are there other robots that we could use that would maybe help with some of the other stuff? So you don't want to have a hammer and a pickaxe <laughs> in your hands the whole time while you're walking. Yes. Yeah, so how did you end up addressing that, that issue? 
Um, we're still working on it. Uh, it's kind of the gunslinger approach, <laughs> where you put different carriers on parts of the legs where they can just kind of grab it and go. Um, and we're still thinking about other you know, tool carts and things that you could use as well. Uh, and Apollo had a lot of these similar items, but we're trying to build them for more aggressive work on the moon surface and be prepared for Mars. What was, what was something that like, really surprised you once you saw these, these geologists like, in the suits wandering around? You were just like, oh, that's... I didn't think about it that way before. Well, you know, um, <laughs> when you're used to working on a suit that's used in a microgravity environment, like the ISS shuttle EMU is, you don't have them walk a lot. And we've done some walking in our suits in the lab because that was important, right? Um, and we, sure, you can do that. Uh, but our geologists take off up slopes to cliffs. You know, they're, they're going places where we're like, whoa! <laughs> and really, we can't catch them if they do fall, but we can make sure that we can pick them up afterwards. So <laughs> they would, it would surprise us sometimes where they were willing to go and, and how they could cover the rough terrain on um, slopes and things. So that was good to see. Mars astronauts will be on the planet for a much longer time than the lunar astronauts yeah. will um, or have been. Um, and if anything happens to those suits, we sort of nodded at this before, but they're going to have to fix them there. Um, how does that affect the design process? Yeah, so one of the things that the Portable Life Support System team, my cohorts in the whole spacesuit design effort, um, they have been thinking about how you could have major components be more removable, replaceable. The current suit, when they designed it, they expected it to go up, do a couple spacewalks, come down, and then a team of technicians came in and did anything that needed to get done. And so when they started flying the ISS and they needed to be more handy with the suits, we had to make major changes. And so we can now move our portable life support systems from the shirts, the hard upper torsos, between the different suits for sizing, for one thing, but in the, in the new design, you can start fresh and figure out how to make that much more capable, like you take the, the cover off and then things are much more readily accessible and more um, able to be removed and replaced. So are they, are they also going to be getting, uh, you know, repair training kind oh, of yeah. thing? Like learning oh, yeah. how to like tailor their own, yeah. uh, their own spacesuits, like patches or something, or, you know, uh, how, how might they fix that, you know, while they're staying in a habitat on yeah. this other planet. Well, one of the things we've been thinking about is 3D printing. You know, can you have all these different parts or could somebody be designing a part and sending up something so you just print it out and use it? Um, the, the reliability of the 3D printing structurally has been an issue. It's getting better and better as we're learning more and, and getting better materials and just getting more, um, more tries with it, right? And so that's definitely one of the thoughts that we have to minimize the logistics you need to take with you, but still be able to do what you need to do. Yeah, and bringing us back down a little bit to Earth here, uh, you know, previous spacesuits and a lot, like a lot of NASA technology has led to innovations here on Earth, uh, like better gear for deep sea diving and more comfortable underwear. <laughs> what technological advances are spinning off from the, the development of these new moon and Mars suits? So... One of the things we learned working with a geologist is that they usually have a notebook and a pencil and a camera. And so they always are taking pictures of what they're seeing. They're making notes of what they're doing. They still want that, right? They need that to do their science. 
So how do you enable that while you don't want them to be carrying a pencil and writing a notebook? Because that's just hard in a glove. And so you know, what kind of augmented reality devices and interfaces with those devices can we give them in a spacesuit so they can do their jobs? And um, some of those ideas we can collect. And then hopefully that just feeds right back into what we have here on Earth as far as our tools. I mean, we all like our cell phones now, but can you imagine what we'll be able to do you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I mean, you, we were talking about uh, having to keep them alive in the shadows on the moon. Like, is that something that could have practical, uh, you know, spinoffs here, here on Earth, too? It already has, because we were looking at different installations for lunar missions before uh, and Mars missions. And so uh, aerogels, it's basically a real um, light material, basically captures air and makes it an air pocket for insulation. It's used a lot in industry. It's a flat kind of rigid thing, and it's uh, pretty delicate if you flex it. Well, we needed flexible aerogel. So we invested a decade of work into flexible aerogels for spacesuits, and now they're in jackets and in, in boots and different things. And so we got it to a certain point, and then industry's taken it further, and we might be able to take it back and maybe improve it some more and throw it back over the fence. So those, those kinds of things. So you think your, your thin jackets that you have now, the puffy things, um, are great. Well, you might be able to just put a little thin shirt on and still have the same insulation that you did um, with your big puffy jacket. <laughs> You've gone from, you know, designing gloves to working on teams for the full lunar suits. Um, what are some of the most surprising things you've learned, you know, during this whole process? Um, there's a few things. Uh, one thing is just uh, how uninformed some of the astronauts are about what's underneath their cover layer. You know, the white that you see of a spacesuit is kind of the, just the jacket you put on it, honestly. And the stuff that I really spend most of my time on is underneath. And one time I was at an event, Apollo astronaut there, we had an Apollo suit there um, without its cover layer on, and he's like, what's that? I'm like, ooh. <laughs> you'd think you'd want to know these things. And, and the other is just how adaptable people are at using different tools. I've had a lot of different spacesuit prototypes with a lot of different capabilities, and you still ask somebody to do something, do job A. And no matter what tool you're giving them, they're able to do job A. It may be harder, they may not like it, but people will do that. It's one of the reasons that human spaceflight's important. Putting your own eyes on those things and bringing that experience back versus just seeing a picture of it, it's a whole different deal. And we're humans and we, I gotta say, we need that. So that, that aspect of, of the human part of human spaceflight, I think is still really what makes it worth it. NASA spacesuit engineer, Amy Ross. We spoke at the Future of Everything Festival in May. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was produced by me, Danny Lewis. Our fact checker is Aparna Nathan. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers and wrote our theme music. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Editorial support was provided by Falana Patterson. Like the show? Tell your friends and leave us a five-star review on your favorite platform. Thanks for listening.